Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and your host on this Monday afternoon show where we are exciting your imagination, equipping your mind, comforting your conscience with God's ordering of the world, which we know in the law, and also especially the surprise of the gospel, which always comes to us new and full of joy and delight. This this hour, this will be um, at least once I start Stop talking and get our guest on, Pastor Warren Graff, who will join us in about 15 minutes. He's going to bring something curious to the table, and we'll talk about it. But for the, first, for the beginning of the show, I want to talk to you about something that I've been thinking about a little bit, in fact, preaching about yesterday, and that is righteousness, and especially the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, by the way, if you want to join us on the show, I think the best way to do that is on Twitter. I'm B. Wolfmuller. On Twitter, I, I think I, I got the Twitter open now, so you can actually, I might, there's a chance that I'll see it before next month. So if you have questions or thoughts and you want to jump in, uh, that'd be great. You can join us there. Or you can tweet at KFUO Radio uh, also, and we might be able to see it uh, as well. Now, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these words. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to think about that for a little bit. And I want to start by, my, by making this point. You know, normally, we just because we grew up reading the Bible in Sunday school, and, and so we hear the Pharisees and we think, aha, the bad, we know the Pharisees are the bad guys. You know, the Pharisees are the guys that are out to get Jesus. The Pharisees, they're, they're the enemies. They're the ones with the pointy goatees, you know, the ho-ho, the Pharisees. Oh. We, hear the, we hear the gospel stories, and we hear the Pharisees talked about, and we want to say, boo, hiss, bah, Pharisees, bad. You know, we pick up our rotten fruit and, and throw it at the Pharisees. And one of the dangers of that, of that understanding, of the, which is right, but one of the problems is, is that we forget that the Pharisees, at the time of Jesus, were probably the good guys. I mean, if you if you had a, a teenage daughter and you were living in Jerusalem in the year 30, you want her to say, hey, uh, John the Pharisee asked me out to prom. I mean, you the Pharisees are the guys that you trust to take your daughter out on a date. The, the Pharisees are the guys, you know, you hope your sons grow up to be Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones who who want to impress God by their obedience and their keeping of the law. You, you, if you're renting a house in Jerusalem, you want to rent it to the Pharisees. They're going to pay their bills on time. I mean, the, the, the Pharisees, in other words, uh, at the time, are the good guys. Now, this is especially important when we remember that, just for example, when Judas betrays Jesus, that by all accounts, Judas' parents would have, been, would have been proud of him. I mean, Jesus was the troublemaker. Jesus was the one who was who was causing all the stir. The Pharisees were the good guys. They were the guys that wanted things to go like they, uh, like they should be going. They wanted to keep the peace and keep the Romans, you know, keep the Roman swords in their sheath. They were looking after the good of the people as well as the good of themselves, we know. But, but, but when, when, 
the, the, the general sort of climate was that Jesus was the one causing trouble. And so when Judas betrayed Jesus, you see that he was given an, a, a reward for doing that by the state. It'd be like if you were a bounty hunter and you went and got a criminal and you brought him in and you got the, you got the reward for bringing in this criminal. That was the 30 pieces of silver. It was a reward from the church for bringing in the, the guy causing all the trouble, Jesus. So, so the Pharisees were, were understood as, as the good guys in the world. That's why, that's why we got to shift a little bit in our thinking. I mean, we think Pharisee bad, but we got to remember that the Pharisees were understood to be good. The Pharisees were understood to be righteous. The Pharisees were understood to be the holy ones. That, that's why if you're there in the crowd when Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, if you're sitting on, it's beautiful to go there. They, they, we think we know the, the hillside where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount is this beautiful sloping hill that goes all the way down, uh, uh, works its way down to the Sea of Galilee. There's like a broken down Volkswagen bug right, right in the middle of the field nowadays. I don't think that was there 2,000 years ago. Anyway, and you're sitting there and you're listening to Jesus preach this sermon and he comes out and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And you say, what? I, I can't get to where they are. I, I, can't, I can't get my life to be as good as their life is already. And now it has to exceed. It has to go beyond that. It has, I have to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees? Who can, who can do that? And you, ha and you have to think... <laughs> and you have to think that the scribes and the Pharisees who were there listening to Jesus preach had to have the same thought. They had to say, they have to say wait a minute, what? You have to be more holy than we are? I mean, they had, the scribes and the Pharisees had convinced themselves, and, and here we get to the rub of the scribes and the Pharisees, especially the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees had convinced themselves that they were righteous according to the law. Now let's take a little break there and think about this, uh, a pause in the, in the, in the narrative and, and, and take a step back because, because one of the things that we want to realize that the scribes and the Pharisees had done is that we normally think that the scribes and the Pharisees had added to God's law. You know, if you're, uh, Moses says, don't kill. Uh, don't commit adultery. Don't, you know, honor your father and mother. Uh, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Let's take that one. Moses says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. God commands the people to rest on the seventh day. Now the scribes and the Pharisees have said, well, what, is, what does it mean to rest? How many steps can you take? How much can you carry? Can you, you know, they had, they had a, the, the scribes and the Pharisees had all these Sabbath laws. For example, if you had a, if you had a prune in your hand and your hand was outside of the window and the sun went down and it became the Sabbath, could you bring your hand inside? Or if you were walking outside on the Sabbath and, and it was raining, could you come inside? Or, uh, because uh, that means you're carrying water. Or this is one of my favorites. They said, uh, can you spit on the Sabbath day? And by the way, they had decided that you could spit as long as your spit landed on a rock and not on the ground. Because if your spit landed on a rock, it couldn't be watering a plant. But if it landed on the ground, then you were watering a plant. That's doing work on the Sabbath and so forth and so on, et cetera, et cetera. Now, so that, so that we think of the scribes and we think of the Pharisees as those who had added to the law and they, they had made it even harder so that, so that God's law, the Ten Commandments, is like down here and they've raised the bar even higher. This is the righteousness that they're pursuing. 
But if you think that, you would be wrong. I mean, it's exactly what the Pharisees wanted you to think, and they had been playing that game for so long. I have no doubt that they thought that also about themselves. But that is wrong. They had not, they had not raised the bar of God's law, but that rather they had, they had, they had interpreted it so that it was actually lower. You see, God's law, God's standard is so high that nobody can keep it. I mean, when the Lord says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, he sets the bar so so high that nobody can get it. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But but they know that, and so they, they're going to they're gonna bring it down a little bit. It's not just love your neighbor, but here's the, all these things that you can do to keep the law to... Um, to be righteous according to our standard. Now, I've got a picture for this. I have to admit this to you, that when I was a boy, we had a basketball hoop. I might be admitting my sins here, but we had a basketball hoop, and I remember one day that I went out and I lowered that hoop. I brought it down from 10 feet to probably probably about five feet tall. And I lowered that hoop just low enough so that I could dunk the basketball. I don't even think it was a real basketball. It was like one of those half-sized basketballs or something like that. But I could jump up and I could dunk it. It was just low enough so that I could dunk it. But it was just high enough so that my brothers, Philip and Thomas, couldn't. They were, they were younger than me and they just weren't tall enough. So I could dunk it and they could not. And then I went, I went inside and I said to my brothers, I said, Hey, guys, let's go have a slam dunk contest. <laughs> <laughs> now you, did you see the trick? That's the Pharisee trick. That, that's what they had done with the law. They had lowered the standards. They, they, not all the way down. They had lowered the standards down just low enough so that they could keep them, but that everybody else couldn't. And then they could come and say, hey, let's be righteous this way. Let's, be, let's have a Pharisee righteousness. Let's have a scribe righteousness. Let's have this right. And that they could have a righteousness of their own that nobody else could keep. And if you're playing that game, you're going to win. Now, the problem is that the Pharisees had played that, that game so long that they thought that they were actually righteous that they were actually keeping God's law. I mean, it'd be like, if you can imagine, day after day, I'm beating my brothers at the slam dunk contest, and eventually, I think that I'm so good that I should go play in the NBA. <laughs> Could you see the deception? This is the deception that the Pharisees had. They'd been playing this game so long that they thought that they were holy and righteous according to their own works. Now, Jesus comes along, and with this sermon, absolutely blows it all up. I mean, he says, did you hear, remember what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20? He says, truly I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds, goes beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. It'd be like, it'd be like my mom or my dad coming out, seeing me playing this game with my brothers, and he's going to raise the hoop up to, to 10 feet tall or 20 feet tall or whatever. And he says, let's, ha- let's see the slam dunk contest now. Now, if you just saw a dad going out and raising the hoop to 10 and then demanding his son would slam the ball, in fact, saying to me, hey, unless you can slam the ball, you're not going to eat dinner, you'd say that's an absolutely cruel thing to do, but you realize why he's done it, because I had, I had assumed that I was so great, I had puffed myself up according to the rules that I had set for myself, that I thought I was the greatest ever, and I need now, by the law, to be humbled. This is why Jesus preaches what he does, because the Pharisees need by the law to be humbled.
to know that they cannot achieve a righteousness of their own, to know that they cannot reach it by themselves and by their own efforts, to, to know that they have fallen short of the glory of God and that they need a Savior. See, that's the Pharisee problem. If you're sitting there over and over beating your brothers on a slam-dunk contest on a five-foot net, you don't, you don't think that you need someone to help you? <laughs> that, you, that, you that you need someone to, to, to help you along? And as long, dear friends, as, as long as we think that we are keeping the law of God on our own, that we are holy and righteous on our own by our own efforts, then we don't need a Savior. I mean, the, the, the death of Jesus makes no sense if we're busy saving ourselves by our own obedience to the law. So the law comes along and it shows us our sins, how, how desperately wicked we are, what, what profound sinners we are. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, with that, with that word, Jesus intends to throw the scribes and the Pharisees, and I suppose all the people there who are proud, even the people despairing, it throws them all into one pile. It, it throws them all into one kind of desperate heap. It puts them all on the same team. It's like me and my brothers looking at the 20-foot hoop and, and hearing, unless you slam it, you can't eat dinner. And, we, and you just look at it and you say, well, I, I can't. I can't. I can't do that. I, I can't jump that high. This is what, this is what the standard of, of the Ten Commandments does. This is why Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, you call your brother a fool, you are angry in your heart, you've murdered. You, you, you've heard it said, you shall, not, you shall not commit adultery. I say, if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And we look at that and we say, I, I can't. I can't keep the law. I cannot be righteous that way. Can't, I can't achieve it on my own. And that's exactly, dear friends, that's exactly what Jesus wants us to say. We're left to ourselves. The door to heaven is slammed shut. The way to righteousness is completely closed. We cannot get there. And we have to know that first so that when we at last admit that we can't do it, then Jesus comes along and he says, and he says, I've got you covered. So we have to, we have to pair that verse from the Sermon on the Mount the verse we're talking about. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. We've got to pair that verse with how Paul preaches in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says that God made him, Jesus, who knew, no, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. That's the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's the righteousness of Jesus, his perfect keeping of the law. And that righteousness is given to us, not by our works, not by our efforts, not by our slamming the ball on a five-foot hoop. That righteousness is given to us by faith. I mean, dear Christian, that righteousness is the righteousness that you, that you were given when you were baptized. You, if you're listening to me, you believe in Jesus. You have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You have the righteousness of God himself, and it's all given to you freely, completely freely, as a gift from his mercy and his kindness. And that righteousness 
is our joy, and that righteousness is our comfort, and that righteousness is our peace, and that righteousness is how we will stand on the last day, stand before God, and be welcomed into his kingdom to see his face. The righteousness of faith, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that comes to us as a gift, the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. God be praised. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. You are listening to Cross Defense on KFUO. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and talk to Pastor Warren Graff, see what he's got. See what he's got. He's always got something curious cooking for us. So we'll find out. So stick with us for a few seconds. We'll be right back. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse 1. Each weekday, the servants of God at the LCMS International Center gather together to receive the gifts of God in His Word. I invite you to join us weekdays, 10 a.m., for a live broadcast of daily chapel services on KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. If something is priceless, it means we do not have sufficient resources or funds to purchase it. Then what are we going to do with the hymn we're looking at at the next Law and Gospel with Mark Smith entitled, Jesus, Priceless Treasure? Listen to Law and Gospel weekday mornings beginning at 9.30 on KFUO. KFUO is faithful to the Word of God. Listen daily to KFUO as we focus on salvation through Christ Jesus. Generations have heard KFUO proclaim the good news through our talk programs, music programs, and worship services. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. KFUO, faithful, scriptural, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. We are the messenger of good news, KFUO. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church at Aurora, Colorado, your host for this hour of radio where we surprise ourselves, you, me. We are all always surprised with the gospel. I mean, the, forgive, the Lord speaks the forgiveness of sins, and we say, really? Yep, it's true. The blood of Jesus covers our sins, makes us righteousness before God. I have as my guest, I think, Pastor Warren Graff of uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, on the other side of the line. Pastor Graff, how are you? Yes, hi, Brian. I'm, I'm great. How are you doing? Good. I, I don't know if you got the end of the little monologue at the end of the show. We were talking about the righteousness that comes from Christ, and, um, and I had a couple of Twitter questions on that topic. Uh, before we get to what you brought, you want to take a couple of these up here? Let's give it a shot. Well, and this is, I think, a, this is a nice question. It just says simply, if we can keep the law, then what need have we of a Savior from Chris 
Uh, by the way, Chris, that's just Chris is like a softball pitcher with this question. So, Pastor Graff, uh, you want to take that on? <laughs> well, I mean, as a rhetorical, if I remember right, Luther asked that rhetorical question too, and then of course he quickly he quickly answers it. Of, um, but but that shows us that no one can keep the law. Paul does it too, um, where he's talking about the law being perfect, but no one can keep it. So, yeah, I mean, it is a, that's. He has given a softball question. If we were, you could say theoretically, if we were able to keep the law, we, we are righteous of ourselves. There is no need for Christ. Uh, but to do that, we would have to say we, first of all, need to deal with original sin so that I can say there's no sin of me from my origin, from, from my parents, Adam and Eve. There's no so I can't treat it by getting rid of my sin and being righteous by my actions, because what's brought forth my actions is a sin of origin in me, of or, or of me. Hmm. This is, this is uh, I was thinking about, especially last year when we were celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, how do you just, how do you boil down the Reformation uh, to, to just a, how do you how do you get it down to its essence? And I think Luther does something almost like this exact question and what you're talking about. At the beginning mm-hmm. of the small called articles, he says the ch- the chief first article is this: Christ died, and 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 everything grows out of that. If Christ died, then Christ we must have needed Christ to die, and if we what would have needed Christ to die, then we must not have been able to be our own savior. And if we cannot be our own savior, then we cannot. Uh, good works cannot save us. And if good works cannot save us, there's no salvation in the law. And if, mm-hmm. if there's no salvation in the law, then those who would say that we can be saved by keeping of the law deny the first chief article, that Christ died. And it all, it all comes back simply to that, that Christ, Christ yeah. died. And so if I really want to see my sin, I don't just look at the sins that I can see, that I committed. I should look at those and be repentant of them. But if I really want to see my sin, I look at Jesus dead on the cross hmm. and say, that's my sin, and, and my sin required that. So however, however I classify all my little sins that I might think I can deal with, I finally have to look at the Holy Son of God on the cross and say, no, my sin is, my sin is that great. We had, this, um, we had this come up, you know, we had a couple of years ago this the theater shooting uh, up here, this mm-hmm. terrible kind of thing, and and um, and it it, it the, the trial went on and the and the sentencing. I think that might still be happening, and and it had this uh, the occasion of so to to imagine that when we're sitting there trying to fit the punishment with the crime, and 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 you would have the the chance to imagine how that would be mismatched. Like you know, here's someone that's committed mass murder, and you say, "Are you guilty?" Mm-hmm. He says, "Yeah, I'm, I'm guilty." Well, what do you deserve? And and he would say, "Now, this isn't what happened, but just to imagine it, he'd say, "Oh, you know, I I killed four or five people, so I should probably do about 15 hours of community service." And you think, "Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You you do not understand the depth of your own crime. You don't understand if you." I mean, you could say that you're guilty, but if you think that your punishment ought to be, you know, to walk around with an mm-hmm. ankle bracelet or something, then you don't really understand your own guilt. So that the cross, when, when, we, when we're able to look at the cross and see the wrath of God being poured out on his own son, yes, and say, that's what I deserve, now it gives me insight not only to the height of the love of God, but also to the depth of, his, uh, to the depth of our own sin. Yes. 
because if I can keep my sin on these little things that I can see, then it, it can be, because I'm the one that committed these outward sins, it will appear to me that it's something I can handle. <laughs> yeah. So, so if it's just my little sins that got me in trouble, then a few good works will make up, you know, we'll correct the balance. But whenever God says, hey, this is what it takes for the mm. doors of heaven to be just cracked open for you, the death of Jesus, then, then now we know, in fact, that we, we also see the depth of our own sinfulness. So uh, I think, you know, the, the Lutherans love to talk like this, that, that it's, it's understanding the depth of original sin that, that, that helps us to see the height of, of the love of Christ in the gospel. Yes. And, and that's where I think it's helpful for us to remember that word, uh, original, or the, center, the very sin of our origin. Because a lot, I think we can have a lot of really bad sermons that try to give the Christian control over the sins that are that are seen, where, where we try to motivate people of how to how to handle certain things. And yet, really, the Christian sermon is this sin from our origin that is con- condemned eternally before God, because it because it's an attack against God. It's an affront against His creation. To take someone else's life is not just a sin against my neighbor, but in being a sin against my neighbor, it is me saying to God, the life you created, I will, I'm the one who has decisions about ending that creation. Hmm. That's what original sin... I thought original sin was like a sin that nobody ever thought of before. <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that sin was, is original. Yeah. <laughs> but no, those are called copyrighted sins. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what do you got for us today? Always the fun of the program is uh, you bring something curious, and the, one of the nice things is that you are curious by nature, so you're always finding some funny stuff or some unique stuff that we can take a look at. What do you got today? Well, I don't know if, I don't know if you want to say that after you hear this, but okay, I'll, I'll let you begin with a guess. I have something of, of our in, in the culture of history that shows how the Ten Commandments are attacked. So why don't you take a guess which commandment we're going to see being attacked by a, uh, in this case, by a, a government decree? Uh, the seventh commandment. Okay, I think that would be a good guess, because often <laughs> governments are, are interested in confiscation of wealth from, from one person or something to, to give it to another person or class to, to garner more political support. So that would be a good guess, but it would be wrong. Ah. So I have here, I will tell you what it is, and then maybe you can take another yeah, guess. Yeah, second guess. You should just okay. give me little bits, and so, and eventually sure. you'll have to let me run out after I've taken nine guesses. Well, I think, and yeah, there's only a finite number of commandments. <laughs> I don't remember how many. I've gone sure. from a 10% chance of getting it right to uh, <laughs> like an 87% okay. chance. Well, this comes from the Council of People's Commissars of the USSR. In nineteen twenty nine. I was just reading that yesterday. <laughs> okay. So what did the commissar of the people's commissioners of the USSR go after in the Ten Commandments in nineteen twenty nine? Mm. Oh, okay, so uh, this is interesting. Okay, so it's not the Seventh Commandment, which is the basis thing that the which, USSR yeah, that was actually be my going first after. Yes, right, because they, to, to be a, to be, uh, I mean, it's the the what the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Uh, so to be a good socialist, you have to confiscate people's earnings, people's wealth, which means Seventh Commandment. Well, uh, but uh, that's not what the, they weren't about that on this one. I so now I'm thinking. Do you know what would be? The, I think the most interesting would be. So I'm 
I think the sixth commandment would be a surprise, but it would be really interesting to think. But I think it's probably, uh, I want to say that this has to do with the undoing of the family, which would be an assault on the fourth commandment. Okay, now let's say that this, I I think that would be a good guess too, and certainly reading news in our current culture, that would be a, a good lens to look at that and expect that from. But if I tell you that the Council of People's Commissars of the USSR in 1929 were concerned with a commandment of the first table. Ah, huh. Well, then that would be, it would be hard for them to, I mean, to force the people into idolatry, to prohibit them from, I bet it has to do with worship. I bet it has something to do with the third commandment, that is, hearing God's word and gathering for worship. Or prayer, second commandment, which would be weirder? Okay. No, you. it is commandment number three. Okay. But they didn't do it by talking about the worship. Now, they, they did do that later as um, Stalin basically emptied out the, uh, to, uh, imprisoned the Orthodox priests, not to mention the brutality against the Lutheran pastors, which was even much worse. But, but of course, for every Lutheran pastor in, in um, the Soviet Union, there would have been probably, what, a hundred... A hundred Roman or uh, Russian Orthodox. I don't. Sure. I don't know the number, but but by by the time of World War II, Stalin had totally emptied out the Orthodox Church, and yet in 1943, I think he um, he reinstituted the church because he needed it for the um, for the war effort and all of that. But in this case, in 1929, it is a decree about the work week. So they don't go after the church by saying, let's close X number of doors or let's require certain doctrines. They go at it by saying there's no such thing as a seven-day week. Huh. And they do it. And uh, th- their argument is, I guess you could say brilliant, if, if brilliant can be attached to something that is, is immoral and evil. Um, they do it by coming from a directive put out by the Economic Council of Efficiency Experts. <laughs> Is that the real name of the thing? Yes. Good heavens. Well, it's the Economic you Council. Can't... In, in, yeah, it's the Efficiency Experts. That, you just it, can't so make fun of this a, stuff. It makes fun of yeah. itself. No, efficiency is a big word with um, with socialism because that's the way everything is done for efficiency, and that's that's what gives you then the... The, the power to go and, and confiscate or, or do other things. So what they're going to do, or what they did in this directive from the commissars of the USSR, is they got rid of the seven-day week. They instituted a five-day continuous work week, which means you work four days, you get one off, hmm. which sounds maybe okay at first, because that sounds better than getting one day off every seven days. But in this, what they're doing, and this is where the efficiency comes in. And, of course, put efficiency in quotes. But the efficiency comes in because that means that on any given day, 80% of the workforce is working, 20% is off. So everyone is assigned a color. And, and you may be red, which means your color, you start your work week on the first day of the week because that's going to be red, of course. And then the other colors would be debated about sometimes. But if, if I'm a green, then I start my work week on the second day of the week, let's say, and so forth and so on. 
But what that does is it means that a Sunday, uh, the Sabbath day Sunday, in other words, the Sunday of where the church worships, is going to fall on a day off of only one-fifth of the people at any given time. And it also means, then, that if Sunday falls on my day off today, then it's not going to fall on my day off for, well, I don't know what the math is, what, another 35 days, I guess it would be, um, right. as, as it rolls around in that way. So they're going to destroy the church, and it, it, it is considered to be, by them, an attack on religion, but not by saying we're going to shut the doors, but rather we're going to increase efficiency. That is really fascinating. Well, how did it work? What happened? How, how long well, did worked, they do it this? It worked great, and the Soviet system became the most powerful economic <laughs> system in the history of the world, and people lived in peace and brotherhood. Well, it is funny that the seven-day week, I, I haven't thought that much about it, but you know, all the other cycles that we have in, in, in the world, I mean, we have the day, which has to do with the rotation of the Earth. We have the year, which is the sun. We have the month, which is kind of connected to the moon. Mm -hmm. But the week is not connected to anything natural. Um, at least that we know of, uh, or that we can observe. No, I think that's. Yeah, I, I do think that's an interesting question. Can we say that the seven-day week is of natural law? So when Luther talks about natural law, and I don't think Luther he in in his um, where, where like where he specifically talked about natural law in his um, document on what how how the Christian should regard Moses or something. I, I, I may have the title a little bit wrong, but. I don't think he addresses um, natural law in the sense of the of a seven day work week at all. But when he's talking about natural law, can we say that the work week, a seven no, not the work week, but a seven day week, is part of this natural law in some sense? Then included in what is written on our hearts, the way that we would say natural law includes that we should not steal, I, well, or we what, should not murder. I'm yeah. interested in I'm interested in your thoughts on that because it se it seems like there might be something there like I mean even just sort of in the body that needs rest or something that there sh that there's like um mm -hmm. there's a manifestation of the seven day week that that maybe we could discover uh, uh, do you know of anything like that or did, I mean well, did people start getting sick when they tried to work for five for four days and rest for one or something weird like that well the exa the the, uh, the Soviet effort was a total disaster. You'd asked that earlier, and I and I just flippantly answered it, which was probably not helpful. But no, it's it's fine. It's something just need to I'm be mocked. A, yeah, I'm not on the <laughs> council, so I don't have to be helpful. Right? <laughs> That's um, right. No, but, oh, but it, is a, it was a total disaster, and then it was shifted, if I remember right, to a six-day work week with different cadences set up and all of this. Um, but and by the way, what it also did then is it got rid of all the traditional holidays because you know if, if christmas comes on such and such a date or if if all saints eve comes on such and such a date then the, the, all saints eve or halloween is only going to fall on my day off again once every five years mm -hmm. um, and all of that so it gets rid of all the holidays it makes that fifth day the holiday for everyone but that means our holidays are not um in sync with each other but it also means that they can name the holidays, which they did. They came up with a new, a new list that included, you know, great, great socialist victories and history type of thing. Um, but but the, 
Yeah. I, I'm going to stop you right there. I got you to breath because we're going to go take a break and then we're going to come back on the other side and keep going on this. So here's the, the communist assault on the day of rest. What, and, and we'll talk about the Sabbath, what God means, what he gives by rest, both the rest of the body and also how do we understand rest according to the gospel in Hebrews and, and Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy heavy laden and i will give you sabbath so we'll talk about that on the other side and 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 then the fun thing will be to talk about the gospel the 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 assault of efficiency on the gospel that's i think the point we want to get to so stick with us through the great break this is across the fence pastor brian wolfmuller i've got pastor warren graff of grace lutheran church albuquerque new mexico uh, on the line with me we'll be right back after this short little rest stay tuned The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org slash careers. A long-standing tradition here at Worldwide KFUO is to broadcast live worship services for those unable to attend worship or for those who benefit from hearing God's Word online or on KFUO. This Sunday, our 8.15 a.m. worship comes from Ascension Lutheran Church in St. Louis, Missouri, where Reverend Matthew Clark presides as senior pastor. Our 10.30 worship comes from Our Savior Lutheran Church in Fenton, Missouri, where Reverend Mark Sell presides as senior pastor. Commercial with us on Sunday mornings on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. When it comes to quotes we see and hear, and popular sayings we hold dear, the question is, where did those quotes come from? From the Bible, God helps those that help themselves. Nope. It's found in the 1736 edition of Poor Richard's Almanac, published by Benjamin Franklin. How about money is the root of all evil? Nope. The Bible says the love of money is at the root of all evil. How about Gandhi's famous, be the change you wish to see in the world? No evidence he ever said it. Or John Wesley's famous, do all the good you can by all the means you can. And there are even more quotes not found in the Bible. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Moderation in all things. This too shall pass. Engage with the Bible. Read it yourself in all that it does say. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, Pastor of Hope Lutheran Church here in Aurora, Colorado. Uh, we got a bunch of stuff, including a lot of books that you can download for free, some Luther stuff and some old classic theo theological things that we're trying to re revive and bring back to life. And you can find those, uh, browse, look around, download them for free at the website wolfmuller.co, W-O-L-F-M-U-E-L-L-E-R.co. You can also see some of the stuff we're doing on YouTube and some other radio work and uh, visit that, check it out. You can f give us some feedback there. You can also reach out. Uh, uh, reach out. That sounds a little bit too evangelical. You can communicate to us efficiently uh, on the Twitter at B. Wolfmuller. 
I have Pastor, speaking of efficiency, I have Pastor Warren Graff, who was removed from the Council of Efficient, Efficiency uh, with one stroke. They are yes. so, that's how efficient they removed him uh, on the line. I'm and a, I'm in a happy gulag away from that council. <laughs> the, 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 the gulags were efficient also, I would imagine. Oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, the pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. If you if you are if you're traveling where and and you're in say Raton, New Mexico, that's about exactly between Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque and Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora. You have a tough decision, which place you're going to try to go for Sunday morning. That's what I would say. Yeah. Uh, but if you're ever in Albuquerque, stop in. There's cheaper gas on the way uh, coming down from Raton than going up. From our town, so just come down to Albuquerque and see us. There you go. Uh, we're talking about the gulag. Well, we're talking about the Efficiency Council. The attempt by the communists, 1924, was it to to change yeah, the week to a five day week? This is amazing. Um, which uh, there's so many different ways to go with this, Pastor Graf. What I, I would I wouldn't mind spending a couple of minutes exploring the third commandment and God's command to rest. The, the mm-hmm. command to not work um, a little bit, and then talk about the gospel, and then and then bridge over to the conversation about the obsession with efficiency under communism. But maybe could, let's do a little third commandment work first. How's that sound? Good. Um, and and there's nothing better than the large catechism for that. So let me just read what three sentences here from the large catechism, perhaps. Uh, where it says, and this is under, of course, the third, the third commandment, God's word is a sanctuary above all sanctuaries. Yes, it is the only one we Christians know and have. Though we had the bones of all the saints, or all holy and consecrated garments upon a heap, still that would not help us at all. All that stuff is a dead thing that can sanctify no one, but God's word is the treasure that sanctifies everything. By the word, even the saints themselves were sanctified. Whenever God's word is taught, preached, heard, read, or meditated upon, then the, then the person, day, and work are sanctified. This is not because of the outward work, but because of the word, which makes saints of us all. So that, that would show us, and in, in, of course the small catechism has that same thought, but that would show us that even if we were Christians in... Uh, Soviet Russia, and we were made to work on this on this odd five day. That when that fifth day comes around, and we are maybe lamenting that we no longer have a reference to what Sunday is to go to our you know local town church or whatever, we would still be able to know that as we are there with the Lord's word, hearing it preached, meditating upon it, as the Catechism says, that is Sabbath rest. Now, of course. At the same time, that particular government's making it more difficult by imprisoning our priest who would be administering baptism and Lord's Supper to us. But nevertheless, we can say that the Sabbath rest is taken up by Jesus so that, as the verse you mentioned earlier, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that would be Jesus saying, I will give you Sabbath, because he didn't say it in English. So I will give you. So Jesus is there saying, "I am your Sabbath. Come unto me. I am your your Sabbath. I'm your rest before God the Father." So wherever we're receiving these gifts of Jesus is Sabbath. 
there's a the Hebrew says there's a rest for the people of God and it and and so especially in the New Testament although I think this was intended by God I mean right in the middle of things that we're to do and not to do he gives us the command to not do anything I mean uh, the, right. that this third commandment is always a a fantastically interesting thing to meditate on and and so when the New Testament says there's a rest for the people of God and and Christ Jesus himself having having uh, atoned for our sins sits down at the right hand of the father that mm-hmm. that the rest indicated is the rest of faith it's the rest of saying hey all your work all your striving all your attempts to make god happy through your efforts etc just stop stop it you trust yeah. his word it's the righteousness of faith that's well and know. and somehow then to to go to the other the other piece of this which i i think is difficult for it's difficult for me to to understand but how do we speak of this rest in in the in the life of the human? Not as a matter of faith, but just in the life of what it means to be a human. Can we speak of it as being part of this um, this cadence or this you know this clock of our life? Because and, and I say that because we would say that marriage of man and woman is part of natural law, because marriage of man and woman was instituted before there was sin. So it was instituted in the orders of creation. You know, the the man and the woman, the male and female, become one flesh. And so we would rightly speak of marriage of man and woman as natural law. It belongs to every person, Christian or non. Well, in the same way, it is that, uh, what, in Genesis 2, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, we don't have there the command of keeping the Sabbath day holy with the understanding from Moses that that would mean going to the tabernacle. That comes, obviously, later. But we also don't have there the existence of sin, so there's no sin to rest from. But can we say that there is a cadence of a seventh day that is common to all humans, and when it is artificially upset by an efficiency council, it is going to have detrimental results, whether we understand why or not. Now, the wrong way to look at that, let me just think, throw this out there for you, the wrong way to look at it would be that because we are by nature Desi- because there's a pattern of work and rest that mm-hmm. is in nature, that the seven-day work or the seven-day week with the with six-day working and one-day rest is the most efficient way to live. If 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 we take it up into the question of efficiency, then right. we're going to be wrong either way. So it would be wrong if I'm the Soviet and they say, "Hey, we we think we can come up with something more efficient than the seven-day week. We're going to have a five-day week, etc." But then say they fail and they realize, wait, 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 that wasn't efficient because there's something in the natural order about seven days. So let's go back to the seven-day week for the sake of efficiency. We're still missing the point. Exactly. And that's where this word efficiency, on the one hand, is such a good, helpful word when it's used properly. Because if we're talking to, you know, an an engineer designing an internal combustion engine, we, we would we would want to hear everything he says about efficiency to get the most, you know, the most power out of the, out of the diesel or gasoline or whatever. Or, or if someone is delivering water through some hydro system, we want him to know how to do it efficiently. So 
efficiency in the material world can be a wonderful word that is just showing us how to use our gifts to best help each other. But when efficiency is brought into uh, into contact with what it means to be a human, I think that that's where the word can do can, can have great um, devastation in the human life. If if I'm if I'm your friend, do I want to have language of how can I be your friend more efficiently? <laughs> what, what would that mean? Would that mean that um, I, I find it's more efficient to give you? Uh, five phone calls a week of a half hour each than to take uh, <laughs> 10 phone. And I think any of us can see, well, then we're no longer in the realm of a friend giving gifts to a friend, but we're now in the realm of people trying to manipulate the things around them, which is I don't not know. friendship. I don't know what you're talking about. I just sent a note to Carrie saying we need to have a conversation tonight about being more efficient in our relationship, uh, being that, married. That, that, yeah, to think of a, a husband and wife thinking of each other of, um, I need I need more efficiency in the love I'm receiving from my wife. What, what, what would that mean? Um, that, that I don't know, but she just sent me back a, a, an emoji. That's that's working efficient. That's quick. Okay, uh, <laughs> she, she's more. She she could be on that council. <laughs> Where does this efficiency come in? I mean, what is the what is the instinct of the communists to bring efficiency to our humanity? Where where does that come from? Well, I, I think it, you know, the, the socialism, and, and I'm saying socialism here because, because it lets me go also to the, the phrase of dialectical materialism, but all communism is is international socialism. So there's not really, there's a distinction about um, what type of socialism, but communism is nothing other than socialism. Uh, as, as um, you know, fascism is nothing other than socialism. It's just... What, what type? Is it national or international? So if you say, what is socialism, and you get to the, it's dialectical materialism, which, you know, of course, goes to Karl Marx, um, et cetera. But what that means then is we see our world around us, including our neighbor, including humans around us, in, uh, in, in a, um, a metric of materialism. So that what Brian is, he's not someone uniquely and wonderfully created by God with his own gifts and talents for me to enjoy in good, healthy ways and for other neighbors to enjoy in good health. But rather, he's a, he's a you might say, a generic unit of, of this material that we call human, and in that way he's part of the collective. But that means, then, that the argument is always going to be for efficiency. And so if you look at... You know, let's say the American founding fathers, at least in my general rough remembrance, I don't think there's any talk about efficiency. What they talk about is what is man, that that we have certain inalienable rights before, you know, from God is their argument. Now, they may have misstated some of the arguments or they may they may have views in there that, that some people disagree with. But the point is they thought of going about are governing each other by looking at what man is, not by looking at what efficiency is. So when they're saying that you can't take away my right to, to free speech, let's say, was there any concern from them that that may help or it may hinder efficiency? 
or were they just looking at me saying, okay, he's a human, you can't take away his, his voice? Is there a way that, so, so that dialectical materialism reduces the, the human being basically to a machine? I mean, everything is, yes. I mean, materialism puts, it makes everything mechanical. That, yes, that mm -hmm. is, is there a way, now what, what is the temptation to think of God also in those terms, even for the Christian? I mean, the, the, the communist has the more honest way of just throwing out God because God can't be a machine, but there's a way that, that this mechanical idea of God comes along for us too, and now we're wanting, we're wanting or expecting or demanding or efficiency from God as well. What does that look like? Well, if, I think I think it's part of what's going on. If, if you remember the you know the gospel reading for yesterday, um, if you're on the if you're on the three year, are you on the three year readings? Or do you I, I find the one year readings more efficient. Okay, good. <laughs> the, the three year readings are definitely less efficient, which is why I use them. Um, but no, no but you, I mean you'll recognize the texts of when you just think about what was it that. Um, that people wanted to see from God, and what was it that Jesus wanted them to see, and of course they're not the same thing. So often people did not, they wanted to see the miracles. They even asked for the miracles. And yet when all they were looking for were the miracles, Jesus would tell, he would do a miracle, and then he would tell them, go and tell no one, because they didn't really understand him yet for who he is. But what he wanted to give to them was not just the miracle as an act of power, but he wanted to give them the cleansing word of forgiveness. And when someone understands that, then they're to go and tell someone about him. But the word of forgiveness has no efficiency attached to it. Hmm. It's just a, a word of justification spoken from one person to another, in this case from God the Son in the flesh to, to a sinner. So there can be an expectation or a desire, maybe I should say, among us that God will act toward us in a way that shows his efficiency and his power. Hmm. And that mm -hmm. would show someone who wants a miracle in, in the New Testament, but it would also show me now when I want to have, I want to know that my life is a, what, a victorious Christian life because God is highly blessing me. And he's highly blessing great. me because of material things then that I determine. He gives Master me the job I want. He gives me, you know, the health, the health I want. And I call each of these blessings. Therefore, God is blessing me. Pastor Graff, uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I, I got to stop you there. We're going to be cut off with the time. Unfortunately, I, this is. We'll pick it up though. We'll do this again soon. Thank you for being on today, though. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It's an honor. Thanks so much. You're listening to Cross Defense. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Pastor Warren Graff of Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thank you guys for joining us for the hour to talk about the gospel, righteousness, and to remember that that the death of Jesus is not efficient. His 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 love for us is is kind of the, is a lavishness and the forgiveness of sins, the grace of God. It 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 abounds. It's it's pressed down. It's overflowing. It's more. It's more than we could ask for or even imagine. It's it's more than than we need because when it when it comes to God, his, the question for Him is not efficiency. the The question is a matter of love. It's a matter of grace. It's a matter of gospel, and that and that is 
utterly abundant and overflowing for us in the scriptures in the church where the Lord gives us his body and his blood and in everything else that the Lord does for us in his word the holy things above all holy things thanks for tuning in join us again next Monday as we rejoice in the comfort of the conscience and the surprise of the gospel talk to you then Listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314 996 1518, or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at KFUO.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.